Hi, everyone. My name is Tom Pritchard, and welcome to the Marriage Champions podcast, where I talk with marriage champions about the habits, skills, and tools marriage champions can use to have and help others have great marriages and families. Today, my guest is Carl Caton. Carl is the founder and president of the San Antonio Marriage Initiative, an organization whose vision is the restoration of family by strategically investing in marriage for the strengthening of communities and the glorification of God. Thank you for joining me today, Carl. Tom, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I thought before we get into your work with uh, Sammy, I guess it's the, the short for San Antonio Marriage Initiative, and also with uh, kind of a national initiative called the Community uh, Marriage Initiative. Let's just talk a little bit about your background. Um, you know, where you're from, your family, uh, what led you into the marriage uh, ministry area? Absolutely. Well, uh, I, uh, my wife and I both grew up in a little West Texas town uh, called Big Spring. Uh, we were high school sweethearts and um, just uh, uh, built a built a marriage on a great friendship. And uh, and so we're we just the other day we celebrated the 44th anniversary of our first date. <laughs> our wow. first date was a lot of fun, and we always kind of celebrate that every year. And um, Kelly's a remarkable person, and uh, we were married in, in actually 1983, and um, just kind of an ordinary couple. I've been in the home building business most of my life, home building real estate, and so I'm come from the business world. Uh, but shortly into our marriage, five couples in our life divorced, um, two close family members, and actually our three closest friends from church. And as a young, newly married couple, uh, frankly, we didn't know what to do. We weren't in the business of helping couples. Um, but we began to have uh, a lonely person over to our house uh, on Sunday night. And we just uh, cooked hamburgers and we sat uh, with people. My wife's an incredible listener and, and uh, we just cared for people during that hard time. So it was, uh, it was a really kind of a shock to our system but it woke us up to this idea of what would it be like if we just came along and helped uh, couples. Um, Kelly and I have, have always had a fun marriage. We love each other. It's real evident in how we interact. She's hilarious. She's a very witty uh, girl and she likes to banter and we banter back and forth and people just see something that they see as kind of a spark in our marriage. And because of that, all throughout our marriage, uh, couples have made their way to our door. Um, people just show up at our door, uh, not because we can help them. I think more than anything, they just don't know what else to do. And they uh, they see a couple that's come alongside other couples. Um, so uh, we, uh, we uh, had two kids uh, along the way. We now have three grandkids. Both of our kids are adult children. They're married and uh, we moved to San Antonio about 35 years ago and just really love, uh, just love this idea of strengthening families. We care deeply about family and uh, marriage is actually the most strategic way you can help families. Uh, and so that's, that's how, why, how and why we do our work. Mm -hmm. Well, what, uh, what led you then to start up the SAMI or did you, has that been in the, how long has it existed, and um, do you still do work in the business world? 
I, I'm, I'm kind of bivocational. I'm mostly in the SAMI world, a little bit in the business world still. Uh, but, you know, as we helped couples over the years, uh, we became more and more aware of just the incredible resources that are available to marriages around the country. You know, Family Life has an organization, a ministry called Weekend to Remember. And through Weekend to Remember, three million couples have found help and hope for their marriage over almost 40 years. We sent so many couples to Weekend to Remember. But there were many other resources. There were books and podcasts and all sorts of resources that were available to couples. So in the late 90s, uh, we began publishing um, little websites that were that were topically focused, uh, marriagecommunication.com. It's really clear what that's about. <laughs> Preventingdivorce.com. It's really clear what that's about. And on these little websites, 18 different websites, we began to curate and elevate uh, some of the best resources that were available for each of those areas. Uh, what we found along the way that there was something that was missing. There's a missing ingredient to all of this. You know, most of the resources that are created are national in scope. They're, they're what we call nationally informed. Uh, but there was a missing part that there, there was no way for this to be locally driven. And uh, a kind of a pioneer in this space is a guy named Mike McManus. And Mike and Harriet McManus did great work around the country creating what they call community marriage policies. And in 200 and I think 28 cities adopted community marriage policies. Uh, and that was an amazing season of how communities began to come together. And so we, Mike and Harriet helped us get started in San Antonio, uh, but we really wanted to build out a stronger support system to our city. And that's how the, the San Antonio Marriage Initiative was born. So, so when did that start exactly, and what has it evolved, or what what do you exactly do? Yeah, absolutely. So, in two thousand nine, uh, after a long season of prayer, I just simply began to reach out to people who uh, I knew in the community were doing great work helping couples. Uh, it might be it might have been a counselor, or a ministry leader, it may have been a, a lay couple, as you would call them, marriage champions. Uh, it may have been a pastor that was uniquely passionate about marriage. And so I just reached out to people and started listening to them. In fact, in the first three years, I sat down for coffee with 270 people from 75 organizations. Mm -hmm. And in each of those conversations, I just asked the question, if there was to be a marriage initiative, how could we help you help couples? Uh, and what I found was God was already moving, that he was powerfully moving through our community. I found that there was far more people at work in our community than we even realized is that in our cities, there is tremendous talent. There's tremendous resources. We just don't know one another and we're not helping each other. And the marriage initiative in San Antonio and what we hope to create around the country is, is to create a network of people in cities who are working together to advance this thing called marriage. Why, why is it, do you think, people just don't know? Is it because they're so focused on helping an individual couple or in their little sphere of influence that they just don't reach it? Is marriage unique in that dynamic? Or why do you think there is such a lack think, of interaction? Yeah, I think in cities, people are pretty siloed to begin with, you know, and, uh, and it's easy to kind of be doing your own thing. Um, but I think marriage is unique because I think the needs around serving marriages can be overwhelming. And what I have found is that most people working on the front lines of serving marriages um, 
they're pretty overwhelmed with just how much need there is, uh, and especially now it's even more so. Um, and so it's a very overwhelming work. And people, you know, they ask themselves, you know, where in the world would I find time to begin meeting with other people? And why would that even be important? And um, we can talk more about that later, but, um, but the work needs us to be working together. And, and I'll tell you why. You know, you take a, a city like San Antonio, we're a pretty big town. Um, but if you look at the census data, uh, census data will tell you that there's 400,000 marriages in San Antonio. Research says that 20% of those couples are struggling, actually more. But th so that means that we've got 80,000 struggling marriages in San Antonio. And court filings indicate that 9,000 couples will file for divorce in San Antonio this year alone. That's a massive and overwhelming problem. And then when you overlay the, the societal cost, in Texas, the taxpayer cost of divorce is $38,000 per family. So if you kind of think about that collectively, in San Antonio, we have a $300 million a year problem that nobody's aware of, and nobody's talking about. Nobody's, yeah, up until we began, nobody was talking about this $300 million a year problem. And, uh, and so it's gonna take all of us it's gonna take all of us working together. You know, I've done some estimates of like, what would it create, you know, if you, if you had the money to hire a hundred people and you were with a hundred people on staff, you were gonna, you know, do hundreds of small group programs. And let's say that in a, in a year, you know, you could reach 4,000 couples in your program. Well, congratulations, you've just reached 1% of the need. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what we find in cities all across the country. I was talking to a, an amazing national organization that's serving marriages around the country, said that their resources are in over 3,000 churches. And I just celebrated, you know, that, wow, what, a, what an amazing accomplishment. But then my holy discontent kicks in and I realize that's less than 1% of churches. So it's, this is a massive and overwhelming problem. It's going to take all of us working together to get this done. So, so then you met with these two, 200 plus individuals uh, to just find out what they're doing and just sounding, learning from them. What steps did you take then? Or what, what did that tell you? And you know, how have you sought to meet that need or address that gap? Yeah, so we, we uh, you know, we went through a patient season of listening, and um, we weren't trying to create an organization. We weren't trying to create an institution. We weren't trying to create a program. What we were trying to create is a movement, because you can't solve problems of this size and scope with a program. Programs are essential. They're helpful. They're absolutely vital to what we do in a city. Programs are so important, but you'll never solve problems of this magnitude with a program, it takes a movement. And movements, it's, it's, I'm, I've become a student of movements. And a lot of people use the term, it's a popular term right now, it's kind of a buzzword. A lot of people say movements, what they're really talking about is kind of an institutional, real, a successful institutional program. But movements operate very differently than institutions. And it's important to realize that in our communities, you know, in communities, um, prior to the 1800s, everything was done through networked individuals. 
And then with the arrival of the industrial age, you know, was the rise of the institutional age. But in the last 20 years, the world has quietly shifted back to a network world. In fact, it's been said of, of millennials that millennials are detaching from institutions and they are reattaching around networks of trusted friends. It's, this is a dynamic that's at work in our world is that people are more interested now in being part of a network of people who are like-minded. And so when you think about how to do this work in a city, you got to think from a movement making approach. And, uh, and there's three essentials that have to be in place for a movement to be healthy and effective and growing. There's three essentials that have to be in place. And those three essentials are trust, empowerment, and shared purpose. You have to have trust. Everything in movements is built upon a foundation of trust because movements are about people helping one another. And, uh, and that's what makes movements work is that you have to have a foundation of trust. The second thing is you have to have high levels of empowerment. You've got to empower people broadly across the community so that each of us can do what we can uniquely do from our own, what we call highest and best role. What's the highest and best role each of us play to be a part of what God is doing across a city? Is that you've got to have high, we need thousands of people on this mission. Again, let's don't forget, 400,000 marriages, 80,000 struggling, 300 million. So we have have thousands of people empowered in our community. And finally, there has to be a sense of shared purpose. Everyone wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Everyone wants to be a part of something that is meaningful and purposeful. And the people love to do that with other people. That's the per that is what shared purpose is about. Movements, when you have people working together, they have a sense of shared identity. Who is it that we are as a people working together? Shared identity, shared purpose is the fuel. It's the fuel that makes movements work. And, and so we have to have those essentials in place. But, but I think it's important that we go back to the beginning. What is necessary? What is unique about movements? And how do you begin movements that are healthy and, um, and sustainable? Because most movements are not sustainable. And it's really essential that we take our first steps in a way that, uh, that make this, this work. The first thing that you have to do in movements is you have to listen well. And, and let me qualify that. Communication in institutions or communication in organizations is downward. In organizations, communication is downward and it seeks to win support. That's how we communicate in organization or institutional settings is we, we communicate downward because institutions are hierarchical, okay? And so communication has to be downward and the purpose is to win support. And that's why we're always focused on how can we influence people? We want to influence people because we want to win their support. That is very damaging to movements. Movements don't operate that way. Movements, in movements, communication is upward. In, in, in movements, communication is upward with the goal of creating clarity. Because in movements, as a movement leader, what you want to do is you want to understand. You want to understand who the people are and what are they doing and how can we work together? You're seeking to gather not you're, you're seeking to gather information, not transmit information. 
So movement leaders are great listeners and great listeners are people that use a strategy for listening. This is not just having coffee with people. This is far more. It's developing a strategy for gathering information, listening well. And if you do that well, you will gather the information that's necessary to help people understand. And from a faith-based perspective, how is God moving in the city? You know, what, you know, what do we, what resources do we have available to us? How does all of our work fit together? And a movement leader commits to listen well in the community to help those beginning stages uh, to, to really begin uh, in a healthy way. So how have you thought through Sammy to start a movement in a sense? What steps have you taken? You mentioned meeting with lots of people and, you know, what were the key questions you asked them? But, you know, when you began to develop activities and I guess, yeah, I guess activities, things you've done, what are some of those things? Well, movements are not so much about creating something new as they are about revealing what is already in place. And, you know, when I began my listening campaign, I thought I might meet a few dozen people. I met a thousand eventually. I've met over a thousand people in our city who said to me, they're passionate about serving marriages. I believe in communities. If you estimate how many people you feel like you could, could, could hear from, you can multiply that times 10 and be about right. So, uh, so you have to hear from people. And what you, what, one of the things that we learned about our community was that people were operating in different roles. There's different roles that people can play. And this is part of the empowerment piece is that what we found, uh, I have documented 50 different roles that people can play across 11 sectors of our community. You know, we, we often think about the, the faith-based world and the church world. You know, what's the, what are the different roles people can play to strengthen marriages in the church world? Um, well, you can have a senior pastor, right? A senior pastor that's really passionate about marriage. And, and, and the senior pastor is going to lead this from a top-down perspective. There's a, unique, there's a unique role that a senior pastor can play. What about staff members at churches? Maybe a pastoral care leader, maybe a, a, a discipleship leader that covers marriage. You know, what, is it, what about a staff member on a church? What about a lay couple? What is it that a lay couple can do in a church to strengthen marriages? What about your faith-based counselors? What's, what's unique that they can do? Here's what we find about people, and this is why we define the roles, is that everyone has strengths and everyone has challenges. There's unique things that you can do as a senior pastor. There, you know, you can preach from the pulpit, you can use your influence, you can shape your church budget, you can recruit people. There's unique things that you can do as a senior pastor that you can't do as a lay couple. You can't walk into a church as a lay couple and say, okay, I, I want the budget for this. We're going to hire people. You can't do that. Okay. There's unique strengths that a senior pastor has. There's unique challenges too. Like most senior pastors tell us, they're like, man, my biggest challenge is bandwidth. They said, I've had senior pastors tell me, they said, you know, all I want to know is when is who can take this struggling couple that's sitting across my desk. I love these people. I just don't have the bandwidth to hear from them. And this is where we, we realize that when you think about movements from the perspective of the, the unique roles that we play, everyone's need is met by the strength of another. Because if you talk to lay couples, they'll tell you there's nothing they love more than meeting with a couple 
and spending hours with them and unpacking the unique challenges that they face. And I heard a couple say that they had met with a couple and uh, and they'd come over to their house and they were in a terrible crisis and they met throughout the night. And when the sun came up the, that next morning, they cried together and they laughed together and they made a pot of coffee together and they celebrated what had been accomplished. And it was an all night vigil. For most senior pastors, that's the last thing they wanna do. Everyone's need is met by the strength of another. Uh, here's the thing that we know about roles. In every role that someone is in, there are natural motivations that define that role. There's natural motivations that people in this role have. As a senior pastor of a church, your natural motivation is discipleship and evangelism. And you care about marriages, but you're more than anything, you're, you're driven by your natural roles. If you're natural motivations, if you're a staff member of the church, the natural motivation of a staff member is to have healthy, vibrant programs. They love programs and running programs and inviting people into programs. With lay couples, more than anything, they want to impact marriages directly. Uh, with ministry leaders, they want to, their natural motivation is they want to grow the size and scope of their organization. They're, they think very organizational. They want, they always say, no matter what city we're in, if we're talking to ministry leaders like counselors and people that have their own nonprofit ministries, they want exposure. They want to grow. They want to help more people. If you're a national leader, like an author, you want more people to find your books and resources. Every national leader we talk to says, we just want, we've seen our resources change the lives of couples. We just want thousands or millions of people to re receive our books and resources. They want, we want them to read our books. So, so what we're talking about here is there's unique roles that each of us play in our community. And we've, again, defined 50 roles that people have played across 11 sectors of our community. What if you're a divorce attorney? What's the highest and best role you can play? Maybe it would be to change your protocols so that you could identify couples that had a, a glimmer of hope so that you could maybe direct them to a better outcome. What if you're a pediatrician and you know that every time a young couple comes into your practice and they're having their first child, you know that their marriage is going to change. The family dynamic is going to change. They're going to be dealing with in-laws <laughs> and a strong opinions about what you name this baby. <laughs> Pediatricians can be empowered to do what they can uniquely do to help marriages. What about people in the education world that want to help young people develop better relationship skills? What about business leaders? You would, Tom, you'd be amazed how many CEOs have said, you know, I'm in business to do business. But if my couples are, if my, if the people in my business are going through a divorce, it impacts our productivity, it impacts our, our operation. In fact, research says that in a business, if a, if a senior level uh, manager goes through a divorce, it costs that business $35,000. If it's, if it's somebody working on the front lines in a manufacturing plant, it costs them $7,000 in lost productivity. Business leaders care uniquely about marriages, not just because it impacts, impacts the bottom line, because they care about their people. Is there, is there a different role for a CEO to play than a family engagement specialist at a school? Absolutely. So from an empowerment perspective, we want to empower people to each do what they can uniquely do 
from their own highest and best role. What's the unique thing that I can do in the role that I'm in to help couples find better outcomes? Even if that's not my primary role, even if like I'm a CEO and it's, it's more of a supportive thing I can do, there's something unique for each of us to do. And so that is how we empower communities is to help people uh, discover their highest and best calling to serve marriages from the unique position that they're in. So how have you, through Sammy, uh, sought to do that, to empower people? Uh, obviously, you're not starting another program, it doesn't sound like, but you're doing something else. Yeah, so we, we've created what's called Pathways to Empowerment. So for each role that people play, we, we want to create a Pathway to Empowerment. And a Pathway to Empowerment has three things. If we, we provide for people a role model, a roadmap, and a series of steps, only unpack each of those. So to empower people, you've got to give them a role model because we're human beings and we capture vision from each other. So in any role that we're trying to develop, we identify someone who's doing this work at the highest level, someone whose work is inspiring. We did this in the world of family law attorneys. We found a young man who was in his family law practice was doing his work at a very inspirational level. And we elevate this young man as a role model of someone who does this really well. And if you're a, a family law person and you're not doing specific things to help lay couples, I mean, couples going through divorce, and you look at this young man, you would look at him and you'd say, you know what, I could do that. The science calls this vicarious experience. You see it lived out in the life of another person. This is just part of the human experience. You look at this person, you say, wow, I'm in family law. I grant, I help you know, couples with divorces. I could do it the way he's doing it and I can improve my practice. So we all need a role model. The second thing is we need a roadmap. A roadmap says, where am I going and why is it important that I go there? The roadmap answers the question is why should I do this? Okay, I'm a family law attorney or I'm a pediatrician. I got a lot of things going on. Why do I need to add another new thing? And this answers those fundamental questions because, because people have to make a decision to engage. You see, in movements, we always criticize and we're always lamenting the fact that people won't engage. Well, they don't engage, first of all, because you don't provide a unique role for them to play. You don't honor the role they are in. You say, you say to a pediatrician, hey, we got a small group program. Why don't you come lead this small group program? And he's like, why would I do that when I could be more impactful in my own role? How could you help me as a pediatrician? Well, we got nothing for you. <laughs> you see, people engage when you address the role that they play. And the roadmap says, this is where you're going. And this is why it's important that you take the trip. Is because for a pediatrician, these young families are going to be much more likely to be mentally and physically healthy if they're relationally healthy. That's why it's important for a pediatrician to engage. Why is it important for a divorce attorney to engage? Because you are so overwhelmed by the destruction you see in families. You are longing to do something better to help couples find better outcomes. What if you're a senior pastor at church? Why should you engage? Because it increases tithing. <laughs> You know, you have healthier congregants. You have less needs to tend to in your congregation. The roadmap answers those questions. 
so that people make the decision to engage. The last thing you have to have is a series of steps. What are the 10 steps that I can take in my unique role to be more and more engaged to do what I can uniquely do? What we do, this comes from the world of best practices, Tom. So when we define a unique role, let's say a staff member to church, we talk to staff members all around the country and we say, what is it you're uniquely doing to help couples in your position? People that are doing this at the highest level. We aggregate all of those best practices and we take a look at everything that people are doing around the country and we say to ourselves, how can we reorder this in a way that's natural and progressive? In other words, don't overwhelm people. Give them an easy and rewarding first step. It's called a threshold experience in the world of social sciences. A threshold experience says that as a family law attorney, the first step I take needs to be easy and rewarding. And if I do that, as I continue to take steps, I will grow in my skill and ability to help couples find better outcomes, and I will enjoy that process. It's very sustainable when you do these things. We're not asking to do some someone to do something different. What we're doing is we're asking people to do what they're already doing, but better. And because of that, their practice is better. Whatever they're currently doing is better. It's very sustainable because, again, you're not calling them to do something different or something new. Just do what you're doing, but better. Well, that raises a lot of questions. Um, how? So do you see your role is then making these individuals aware, these people with different roles, uh, one, uh, helping them to see the importance of marriage and family. Mm -hmm. And then do you have materials that you provide them with saying, these are things you can do in your capacity and you would do this for each of the different people you've identified? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what we have to do in our communities is we need to inspire our communities. And, and, and we need to inspire, inspire our communities in two ways. We need to inspire couples themselves. We need to inspire the public. We need to elevate the importance and value of marriage all throughout our community. We need to give people hope that their marriage is something worth fighting for. We want to encourage couples to invest in their marriage, every couple, every year. But we also want to inspire community leaders. We want to inspire community leaders to understand that marriage is far more than just a romantic notion. In fact, marriage is the family leadership team. Marriage is the central bond of every family. You know, it's widely believed in our communities that marriage is just a romantic thing. It's untouchable. It's a private matter that should be, you know, that should be, uh, shouldn't be addressed by community leaders. That's incorrect because as goes the marriage, so goes the family. As goes the family, so goes the community. You know, we, talk, we, we have talked in our country for five or six decades about social problems. You know, we, the, uh, Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty and, and the great you know, social changes that he enacted. And by the way, he did a really good job, uh, but in a lot of ways. But when we think of social problems, what we're really saying is these are the downstream impacts of family problems. You see? Because so many of these, so many of the problems that we face in communities uh, could be prevented if we had strong families. You know, you look at 
you know, uh, like, uh, let, let's talk, take some of the issues of the day. Let's talk about poverty, you know. Uh, there's this new thing called millennial success sequence that is if you do these four things in a proper order, you know, the chances of you falling into poverty are 3%. You know, if you graduate high school, if you get a job, if you get married, if you have kids, if you do those four things in that order, the chances of you falling into poverty is 3%. You get one of those out of order and you drop, you jump to like, I don't know, 30 some odd percent. It's, it's like, so is this a problem with poverty or is it a problem with how we form families? I think at the root cause of all of these problems is the breakdown of the family. You know, we, we think about this in communities really often. You know, let's just think about this from the financial cost, okay? I believe from just being in this world for decades, I believe that if you take a strategic approach to communities, I think you can keep a marriage together. I think you can keep a family intact for about $250 a family. We've done, we've, we've run these numbers 10 different directions. I think in, if you take a strategic community approach, you can keep families together for $250. But what happens when a family breaks? Okay, let's, let's just talk about some of the cascading impacts. So let's say a, a child falls behind in school. That's very common. And so what does that cost our community? Let's say five or $10,000, it's pretty, it's, it's not, not a terribly expensive thing. Uh, what happens, let's say, if you have a teenage pregnancy, what does that cost our community? Well, let's say 25 to $50,000. What if young people from these homes enter into risky behavior? And there's a lot of statistics that are behind this. That there's a much higher risk of this thing. Uh, what does that cost our community? 75 to $100,000 if they're involved in in uh, let's say um, dr drug or chemical dependencies, you know, very these things start to get very expensive. What what about boys from these homes? Six times more likely to be incarcerated. What does that cost our community? A hundred and eighty thousand dollars per year. I we recently were presented by an organization in our city that wanted to create a facility to help uh, sex traffic children. And, and it, they were trying to estimate what this would cost. And they felt like for a child with compound traumas to rehabilitate and restore each child is about $500,000, about a half a million dollars per child. Now look, in, there, there's a whole world of philosophy called effective altruism. And effective altruism is rethinking how we believe, what we believe about how we engage with people. And effective altruism challenges people this way. Effective altruism says our human nature is to feel with our heart. But if we want to help people, we should also think with our head, <laughs> use the old noggin. And effective altruism presents all sorts of philosophical questions like, and in our case, this is not what they ask, they talk about, but in my case, if you look at it from this perspective, there's an upstream to these problems and there's a downstream. And my estimate is that you can prevent 2000 families from breaking or coming apart. You can, you can help 2000 families at the highest level for what it costs just to help one child at, at their most difficult location, at their most difficult point. You know, at some point, we've got to start thinking strategically. 
you know, and, and you hear donors all the time. Donors say, well, I've got donor fatigue. You know, I just give and give and give and I don't see things change. Of course, if you wait to give, if communities wait to engage until these problems at their, are at their most complex, most expensive point, of course, we're going to be fatigued. Everybody in our social system is fatigued. Why? Is because when we don't engage until the house is burnt to the foundation. What does it cost to put up a smoke detector? What does it cost to rebuild a house? There's nothing but ashes on concrete. We understand this in the world of fire prevention. We understand this in the world of healthcare. We're all about prevention and healthcare. Why is it in family care we don't go to the upstream and say, let's help 2,000 families rather than helping one person that's at the lowest point? We've got to change what it is we think. Here's the thing. Social problems persist when what we think about the problem is wrong. We're thinking about the problem in the wrong way. The most important thing we can do in our cities is to change our mental model. What is it we think? It's like, we've got to wake up and realize, oh my gosh, the kindest, most loving thing we can do for children is to come alongside them before their problems have become compound traumas. You know, and we've got to quit rewarding the system for waiting until we're their absolute most, most challenging moment. I, I met a guy that worked in fire, fire department. And he'd ridden on the back of a fire truck his whole career and he got moved into fire prevention and he had a desk and he wore a white shirt and a tie and he drove a sedan. And he said, Carl, he said, I know that I'm doing better work, but I sure miss the excitement of riding on the back of that fire truck. I loved it when we broke a window and, and saved a child from a burning house fire. You know, that's our human nature. We've got to fight against our human nature. We've got to continue rescuing people. I'm not saying we can't stop rescuing people, but we've got to begin diversifying and moving more into the upstream. And that's what community marriage initiatives do. If you want to help families, the most strategic, the most cost-effective, the most valuable way you do that is to move as high as you can to the upstream and prevent problems from happening, prevent families from breaking, help children before they're at their absolute worst possible moment. Well, let's, let's take the next step or, and ask, how do you go about doing that practically then in a community? You mentioned community uh, marriage initiatives. Uh, you talked about the different roles people play, whether you're an attorney or a pediatrician or you're a pastor or a lay couple or individual. Uh, how do you see, let's say an individual, a group of individuals, starting a movement, I guess you, mm -hmm. you would say, I would say in, in terms of marriage. Well, we are, we're doing that right now. We're uh, talking with people in cities all across the country. We're talking with people who really understand this. They get this. Uh, everything I've shared is not new to them. They, they, they know that uh, serving marriages is very strategic and they're looking about looking into how can they come together in their city? What are the unique dynamics uh, that are in place. So we're currently having calls with 10 cities every month that are taking their first steps uh, towards forming city marriage initiatives. Um, and so what we need in cities is uh, we need kind of a beginning council of people. Uh, we call them local advisory council. We need people 
who really get this and understand this and who are willing to invite other people just to talk about this problem, to talk about what would it look like if we came together as a city to get more strategic in how we serve families. Uh, so we're talking with people around the country who are doing that. We're working with a, uh, a grant making uh, individual who is going to do some early funding for this in cities. Um, there's some really unique things that you can do in cities. Uh, you can uh, you can help get the word out. You know, we, we say there's three essential strategies you can do in cities. You can inspire, resource, and empower. What we mean by that is you can really get the word out that there's help and hope for marriage. Uh, using social media that has become very inexpensive to do. In San Antonio, we spend about $25,000 a year on social media ads. We do 100 ad campaigns a year. Um, you know, we, uh, our stats are typically will have um, 3 million engagements. Uh, I mean, 3 million impressions, a million engagements. We'll have 100,000 clicks from our ads that send all these people's, uh, people to events that are happening around the city. Uh, so you want to elevate the importance and value of marriage across your city. You do that by being a steady, consistent presence for that in the city. Um, the second thing you do is you want to resource your community well. Uh, we, we know that there's roughly 250 people and organizations around the country who are creating best-in-class resources for marriages. The problem is they're only reaching 1% of their audience in our city. So what can we do as a city to help those resources flow into our city so that more people can find and use these resources and, and can see the life-changing uh, things that happen when you engage these resources? And the last thing is to empowerment. We talked about empowerment. We want to empower our communities very broadly. But that, you know, that's a tall order. You know? So what, we're not saying that uh, this is a fast, easy fix, but if you uh, pursue this with diligence and faithfulness, um, that you can really move the needle in your city. But it always, it always begins with a small group of people who really understand how strategic marriage is. And then you get these people to begin to come together, to get to know one another, to begin uh, learning from each other. Uh, I think that's, those are the beginning steps. So what were the three points again? Uh, Inspire, resource, and empower. Okay. Uh, is this situated in the church or is the church just one piece of this or is it a play a central role or talk about the church the role. plays a central role. There's no institution that cares so uniquely about marriage as the church. So the church is always going to be the most important, uh, the most central role that any of the sectors will play. But you don't want to overlook the other sectors. You don't want to overlook what's what you can do in the education space. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, has done a really great job of uh, attracting federal funding uh, where she has trained uh, tens of thousands of teachers around the country about how to do relationship education in the school system. Uh, there's a lot of government funding for this. Uh, it is surprising how much government funding is available for relationship education because believe it or not, the government really gets this. If you, if you build strong relationships that keeps families together, it reduces the taxpayer cost of, of many of these programs. So the government understands this, really gets behind this. There's a lot that your nonprofit community can do. Uh, there's a lot of YMCAs around the country that are, you know, their, their original charter was built on strengthening families. And a lot of YMCAs put a lot of energy in creating fitness centers. 
And a lot of those YMCA's are rethinking, you know, what is it that we can uniquely do? There's a lot of nonprofits in our city that are care uniquely about serving families. What is it they can uniquely do? How do you bring them together? What about the counseling community? And so I'll give you, I'll give you an, exa an example of how our city came together. So uh, there's an organization in Dallas called Watermark, and they have a, a great resource called Reengage. And Reengage is a program that you can run in churches where, um, where lay couples can act as table leaders and, and you can really help people grow in their marriage. Uh, we had two churches in San Antonio that were doing re-engage and they were very excited about the program. It was, it was uh, really successful for them. And so we brought together church leaders from other congregations and we helped them learn from each other. What is re-engage? What is it about? Why is it important? Why does it make a difference in your church? Why does it make a difference in your community? And over the coming years, these church leaders helped one another and before we knew it, there were 12 churches in our city that were doing re-engage groups. Well, we needed even broader collaboration because what if you were running, if you were a lay couple and you were a host couple at a table and a, and a couple came to you and their marriage was at 911 status. And like, man, this couple's bleeding out. We're, we're not gonna help them as a lay couple. So what we did is we built connections into our counseling community where these people could refer people out into the counseling community. And then the counseling community came together and they said, how can we work better together? And in our counseling community, different, they learned from each other. And one said, well, I like to do use EFT as a counseling uh, uh, approach. And another said, well, I like to do intensives and you know, where you, you get to the root problem really quickly. Another said, I like to do discernment counseling. And this, there's this whole new world of called discernment counseling. Very, very fascinating. And we connected these counselors with researchers from around the country, like Dr. Stephen Harris from your state. Dr. Stephen Harris is from Minnesota. He has spent much of his career learning and studying the divorce decision-making process. And he helped our counseling community right here in San Antonio from Minnesota. He helped our counseling community and our family law community understand that the divorce decision-making process is very dynamic a lot of surprise learning. And so our counseling community came together and they said, well, what if we kind of divide and conquer? Each of us has a special, we'll refer people back and forth. And what about the family law attorneys? What about the, the divorce attorneys? They needed to know people in the counseling community. They needed to understand. So we had this massive outpouring and, and eruption of collaboration. And the bottom line was, if you were struggling in your marriage on 300 nights of the year in San Antonio, you could find a re-engaged group to go to. And that re-engaged group just wasn't just an ordinary re-engaged group. It was a re-engaged group that was supported broadly by our counseling community, our family law community, by church leaders, by lay couples. It's the people of God coming together to advance the kingdom of God, ultimately for the glorification of God. This is what Paul talked about in the epistles. This is the people of God working together to redeem and restore what God created as his first institution. We forget that. Marriage is God's first institution. And you could walk into almost any city in the country, Tom. You could walk into almost any city in the country. You could set up a marriage initiative, and it's a wide open space. Ain't nobody there. 
It's an empty office. You can walk into any city in the country, set up a marriage initiative, and you have zero competition. Nobody's doing it. Who's speaking to who? Who in San Diego is elevating the importance and value of marriage? Who in Boston is the voice for marriage in the city? Who in Fort Worth is the voice for marriage in the city? It's a wide open, empty space. You can walk in there, set up a marriage initiative, and you can begin reaching thousands of people by bringing people together. Now, what about God's second institution? There's 350,000 of those already. And they're pretty much a little too much competition. Like we got God's second institution. They're in every neighborhood in every city in the country. What about God's first institution? What is it we can do to come back and to engage in something that has been largely forgotten? If you want to make a significant impact with your life, if you want to change the kingdom of God, if you want to impact thousands of families in your cities, get into the work of serving marriages in a community-wide effort, and you will see dramatic change. Mm. Well, let's talk about San Antonio and the work you've done there or are doing there. What's sort of, what does your organization look like? And obviously that would communicate your priorities and, and things you see are most strategic and important to do. Yeah, so we're uh, we're about four, we're in our fourteenth year. Um, we uh, we're still a very small organization. Uh, uh, we have fourteen people that work for us. Ten are employees and four independent contractors. Very very dedicated people. Uh, we've learned so much about how to do this in a city. Uh, but I always call San Antonio is the laboratory. Uh, you know, we're we're really studying how do you do this in a community. What are the dynamics of how you do this in a community? And so we've, we've built a, a lot of capacity to serve our city. Uh, we've seen the divorce rate drop uh, by roughly 25% over the last 14 years. It's a lot of marriages saved. Um, we're doing it because we're empowering people very broadly. We, we don't do any, this is really important. In, in the marriage industry, we work at a high altitude. Uh, we don't do any work on the front line with marriages. We don't serve marriages, we don't do counseling, we don't do anything on the front line but we serve hundreds of people who do. And, and this is, we, we describe this as nationally informed, locally driven. It's nationally informed because we tap into the research that's being done, excuse me, all around the country. People like Alan Hawkins and Brad Wilcox and uh, Dr. Bill Doherty in Minnesota and Dr. Stephen Harris. We tap into all the high level nationally informed research and we tap into the nationally created resources and we tap into the best thinking that's being shaped by policymakers. So it's our work is nationally informed, but in San Antonio it's locally driven. So we we serve this what we call implementation gap. So we connect our city, these locally driven aspect of our work, to these national organizations that create best in practices. That's what we do. We work at a high altitude in our city. Uh, but uh, when COVID hit, we uh, uh, before COVID hit in 2019, we had um, in our city in 2019, we had over 125 live events for couples in that year. Uh, Dennis Stoika said that we got more marriage resources per square mile in San, San Antonio than any city in the country. And again, driven by social media campaigns, driven by people working together. This is an army of people in San Antonio. But when COVID hit, uh, you know, we asked ourselves, we've been driving deeper and deeper and deeper in one community. What have we learned? What is the best of what we learned? And how can we go wide? 
how can we share the best of what we learned with people in other cities? Because we want to learn from them. We don't have this all figured out. Uh, we're, we, these calls that we're doing with city leaders around the country, we are learning so much from them. There are so many talented people around the country and we love learning from others and sharing what we've learned. Uh, and that's, that's what we've been up to. So um, how has COVID changed you? I mean, obviously you've started to look outward, but did that re-change what you did? Or obviously churches, I mean, it's had an impact or are we going to revert back to, is, it, is there a new normal or are we going to revert back to the way things uh, were? I think we're going to emerge from this better. Uh, I think we're going to emerge from this better because COVID revealed uh, to so many married couples that they have underinvested in their marriage. You know, we heard from so many couples that they might say something to us like, you know, we've been married 15 years and we've never done anything. <laughs> we never took a class on communication. We never did a small group on intimacy. We've never done anything. And all of a sudden we're in the middle of COVID and we're at, and we're having uh, challenges and, um, it's time for us to learn. And so COVID sped up the process. Um, the other thing COVID did, which was really interesting, and this has been so powerful, is that of these, what we believe, 250 national resource creators, so many of these resource creators move their resources to an online presence. Uh, and, you know, whereas before, you know, uh, you might be a celebrated book author and you travel around the country, you do live events, well, they created online events. And it's really important to know this because there's a lot of research that's behind this. Dr. Alan Hawkins and some of his colleagues did a lot of research on uh, this, the, the differences between live uh, marriage instruction and uh, what they call self-directed, that's online. And what they found was, is that these are two very different audiences that there are people that prefer self-directed resources and they can't imagine why a couple would go to a live event and talk about their stuff in front of other people. You know, the, the self-directed people, they say, you know, we wanna do this at night after we put the kids to bed in our own living room. And we can't imagine going to a live event. And there's people that prefer live events and they say, we can't imagine doing this at home. Why would you do this at home when you could go to a marriage date night and just experience the excitement and the buzz of being there in person? There's nothing like being in person. There's nothing like sitting next to other people. These are two very different audiences. And what COVID did was it sped up the development of online resources so that our self-directed audience now has a really robust offering to choose from. So uh, it's, it's, it, COVID has really improved uh, really everything about this whole world that we work in. How has it affected uh, Sammy? Have you adjusted how you work to you know, inspire, empower, and connect people? Uh, COVID has helped us uh, because um, uh, uh, Zoom has been normalized, just like today. We're talking on Zoom. Uh, and Zoom has become normalized. We're able to meet with more people. I still love meeting with people in person, but now I'm meeting with people all around the country. And I love that. And so it's, it's simplified things. Um, and so it's, it's helped us. Uh, you know, um, some of the issues that happened with couples around COVID uh, really kind of ignited um, 
some things with donors and donors have woken up and realized this is the most strategic way to invest in families. So uh, our, our organization has grown dramatically since pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's turn a little bit to, uh, to churches. Let's, uh, a couple of things I'd like to end our conversation with. One is churches. Uh, what's your advice or what's recommended for a church to begin to make marriage a priority? Um, I've seen surveys from Barn and others saying 80% of churches spend zero ministry dollars on marriage or j- just to communicate the idea that it may be not a high priority explicitly in a lot of churches. But if somebody, a pastor or a lay couple wanted to get a marriage initiative going in their church, what steps do you recommend? Well, you know, I think the first thing churches can do is get real. <laughs> you got to get real. And Ted Lowe uh, is a great thinker. I love Ted. And he, and Ted says this. He says, every church does marriage ministry. You know, uh, either they're spending 90% of their time dealing with couples in crisis and it's reactive. And uh, because what, what are you going to do as a church leader? You, you have a, a couple walk into your office and said they're divorcing, what are you going to do? You're going to tell them you're not there for them? No, you're there for them. So churches, every church has a marriage ministry. It's either organized and is more preventive, or it's not organized and it's reactive. And virtually every church has the same amount of staff time put into marriages. Uh, so it's important just to get real about this and, and, and realize the more strategic you are in a church, the more effective you will be in helping your members. So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, for churches, you got to start where the passion is. You know, sometimes uh, uh, we'll meet a a church staff member and they're overwhelmed by the counseling need. And they come to us and they say, we've got to do something. We've got to develop some programs uh, to really help the churches. And so a church leader, a, a staff member church needs to go up get the support of the senior pastor and then needs to go down to recruit people to be a part of this right so that's the point of beginning now rarely but sometimes a senior pastor will come to us and they'll say oh my goodness you know we had a deacon couple come into our offices the other day and announce they're divorcing we had no idea that's what pastors tell me really often i had no idea and so they're very motivated then you know the house is on fire they're very motivated and we, so we say, okay, let's start at the top. You're going to need a staff member to run the programs, and you're going to need lay couples to support those programs. That's our point of beginning. Most of the time, it's these amazing, passionate couples who, uh, who really want to serve marriages. People like Kelly and I, that we just realized, you know what, we want to come alongside marriages. And so if you're a lay couple starting out, you start from the bottom. You need to get the support of your senior pastor. You need to get a staff member to support you at that mid-level. And you, you need to recruit others around you to come alongside. So that's the point of the game, okay? The second thing is, is you need to think long-term, what are you trying to accomplish? And in most churches, you want to accomplish four things. You want to prepare engaged couples for marriage well. You want to help those newly married. You want to help them to get off to a good start is your second thing. Uh, and thirdly, is you want to enrich all the marriages. And finally, fourthly, you want to have a plan in place for couples in crisis. What are you going to do for these couples that walk in saying they're going to divorce? Uh, so you need those four components. Okay, but let's be realistic. 
we all have limited time and resources. Start where you have the energy. Start where you have the funding. Start where you have the passion. Start where, uh, take your easy first step. Slow and steady wins the race. We say the most important thing about your marriage ministry is that your marriage ministry is still alive 10 years down the road. And you do that by taking a slow and steady approach. You know, the easiest thing that people can, in churches can do is just start a date night event and just do one date night a quarter. If all you did was just have a date night event once a quarter, that's an easy thing to do that, that reaches so many of your married couples. And you can, you can design it you know, in a way that helps singles. Everybody needs to grow in their relationship skills. You know, a lot of people say, well, we can't do a marriage ministry. What about our singles? It's like, no, everybody needs to grow in their relationship skills. So do something that helps people learn how to do relationships better. Make it fun. You know, start where the energy is and, and build from there. Uh, you know, if you, as you develop your plan to help struggling couples, build relationship with counselors. You need, you don't need, you don't have to help those struggling couples. You can send them to people who want to help them and are equipped to help them. Um, if you want to uh, then build out how you prepare couples for marriage, get trained in Symbus or get trained in Preparing Rich. There's, uh, there's a hundred thousand facilitators for Preparing Rich that have helped four million couples around the world. This is gold standard. It's fun. It, helping engage couples is a lot of fun. There's a lot of couples that like to do that. So think about you know what your long-term goal is, is that you want to have those four components as part of your long-term plan. Start in the places that are easy wins and just take it step by step. Mm -hmm. As far as a marriage champion, somebody who could be a lay person, my, my definition would be, it could be somebody who's passionate about marriage. It could be lay couple, it could be a staff person, it could be a pastor. Um, what, especially a lay couple, if they're starting something, what qualities do you think are important in, in their lives to, to fulfill that role in a church? You know, uh, I'm going to take you back to that gentleman, Father Rob Runke, the Catholic priest. And over 47 years, he pioneered a way to develop these couples. He called them sponsor couples. And I love Father Rob. He, uh, he was very opinionated, but he had he based it on lots of experience. And I, I remember asking him one time, Father Rob, what what do these couples look like in your church? And he and he said this. He said, "Keep it simple, Carl." He said, "He looks for couples that attend church together, that sit close to one another, that and number three." that speak to each other in loving and respectful ways. And he said, give them an opportunity to walk alongside an engaged couple, just not to sh as much share wisdom as just to do life with them for a number of weeks, walk through a book together, uh, you know, just get to know this young couple. He said, these sponsor couples, he said, their marriage will be enriched. There, they will get so much from this. He said, these older sponsor couples, they love meeting with these younger uh, couples that are, are newly engaged and in love and all the crazy stuff that goes along with that. They, he said they love that. And, uh, and that's the best way to recruit these couples is it, it's not rocket science. 
couples do need to be in a healthy place in their marriage. If they're struggling in their marriage, they're not really ideal to be a sponsored couple. They need to be in a healthy place, but no marriage is perfect. They do need to be in a healthy place and they need to have that spark between them. Well, let's, let's build on that idea of being in a healthy place. What do couples need to do if you were to narrow it down to just a few practices that, that they, if they want to be healthy, what do they need to do? Derek Irvin is a staff member at a church in Indianapolis, and he says this, and I think this is the best advice I've ever heard. He said, couples should connect daily, they should date weekly, and they should get away regularly. Mm. And I think that I think that is, that's great advice, is that every day we just need to have, we just need to check in with each other, you know, whether you're having coffee with your spouse in the morning, or maybe you have a check-in at dinner time, uh, just really need just to to connect daily as a couple just be on the same page really simple really simple you need to date weekly for kelly and i it's we call it family fun night every friday night we did this with our kids growing up every friday night we put this this uh checkered uh, picnic tablecloth on the carpet in the living room put on a movie and we had family fun night you know and we had pizza every friday night and uh, our kids grew up, they left home, and every Friday night, we have family fun night, whether the kids are there or not. <laughs> Last Friday, Kelly called me, she said, well, you've been kind of busy today. I said, Kelly, we are having family fun tonight. We're, we're, having, we're having pizza tonight. And uh, so we, that's our weekly date. When our kids were growing up, you know, uh, we, we did our dates differently, but date weekly, and then get away regularly, consistently once a year, a couple times a year, just get away and prioritize your marriage. You know, invest in your marriage, plan for your marriage, uh, get away regularly so that you can do that. Wow, that's very, very practical, but great wisdom. Um, let, let's talk a bit about a community marriage initiative. Let's say somebody, uh, a couple people in a community say we want to impact marriages in our community or our metropolitan area, what steps do they need to take or how do they begin to move the ball ahead in that area, that regard? I would say, first of all, listen well, listen well. Just reach out for coffee with people. Just reach out and, and uh, find out what other people are doing, celebrate what other people are doing. And I'll tell you how I did this. I told you I had a thousand conversations. And, and when I was about a hundred conversations in, I kind of reflected on how successful I'd been in having coffee. And I really boiled it down to five questions. And I walk into every coffee meeting and I ask these five strategic questions. And if we're planning to spend an hour together, I am planning to spend 50, hour, 50 minutes of that hour letting somebody just unpack around these five questions. I never go to a meeting that I don't use this framework of questions. So my first question is always this. I'd say, hey, Tom, I hear that you're doing great work around marriage, because I have. I hear that you're doing great work around marriage and you have this passion. Tell me what you're doing. It's a big, broad, open question because I want to get people going in a direction. Is they, they might spend 10 or 15 minutes telling me about what they're doing and what is they're excited about. The second thing I ask is, that is so interesting, Tom. I'll say, tell me, how is this part of your personal story? How did your personal story bring you to this place where you care so deeply about marriages? Man, now 
Now I'm kind of I'm kind of moving them into a chronological thing. That think back, what was it like? What were the challenges you faced? What what was the passion? That's it's really important to to help people see this overarching this meta narrative, what God's doing in their life. So I'll let people tell me their personal story. Then my third question is this: I'll say, Tom, that is so amazing. That's so impactful. I said. Thinking forward, Tom, what is the one thing you are most excited? As you think about serving marriages around you, what's the one thing you are most excited about? Now, see, I'm starting to narrow down. I'm starting to get, get them focused. Okay, what's the one thing where all this energy is inside of me? And uh, people, people like answering that question. A lot of times they haven't even shared that answer with people. My fourth question is this. And I got to prepare my myself that I maybe experience a long pause when I answer the fourth question. My fourth question is this: So, Tom, it's really excited what you're what you're thinking about. What's in the way of that? What's your roadblock? What's keeping you from moving forward? This is where, in hundreds of conversations, people sit back. I've had so many people say to me, "No one has ever asked me that question." And, they'll, and they might sit there for a minute or two minutes. I've had people just become overwhelmed with emotion. Like this has been on their heart. Like they really wanted to do this. What's the one thing that's in the way? And they'll share that with me. And usually it's not well-framed. I'm not even sure what it is, but they do their best. My fifth question, my last question is this. How could I help you take your next step? What could I do? Now, I have to preface this by saying, I can't help a thousand people. But if I've, if I've met enough people, what I believe is everyone's need is met by strength of another. So as you're telling me what could help you take your ne next step, maybe I can help you. Or maybe I know someone. Else. But see, God is not a God of chaos. This doesn't surprise God. And so I almost always find the answer someone else or maybe it's something i can do okay so we're in the conversation we've we're about 50 minutes and the person i'm listening to kind of uh they kind of gather themselves and they go oh my gosh you know look at the time gosh well how did how did you know 50 minutes get by and you know we're getting ready to leave and and so that they're they're feeling like oh i need to ask you something well i'm going to answer a question with a question tom so somebody will say, well, tell me about the marriage initiative and tell me what you're doing. Okay, I'm going to answer that question with a question. And I'm going to answer that by saying, you know, um, I'm just I'm just interested in talking to people, Tom. And I, I'm just wondering, Tom, what would it be like if we um, if we came together and got to know each other? What would it be like if like we began to help each other? What, what would it be like if like if we created really strong connections and maybe met in person with would you like to come, Tom? Would you like to come if we had lunch together with a group of 20 others and you could meet them? I know they'd like to meet you. People always say yes to that question. You're inviting people into relationship. I don't say, I don't close that conversation and say, well, Tom, I have a vision. Here's what I want to do. Here's my programs. And I want you to, I said, no, I want people to co-create the future together. See, here's the thing about movements. People own what they help to create. If you and I co-create the future together, you're invested. 
you're going to be a part of that because you help create it. People own what they help to create. So I'll spend an entire hour and I'll never make a statement. I'll do nothing but ask questions and I will help people feel heard. And through that, I will build trust because that's what a movement leader does. A movement leader leads on the basis of trust. I, I can't pay people. I can't coerce people, but I can earn their trust because I can say, I've met with hundreds of people and I can share back with you what I've heard. People want to know that. I can say, I've met people like you, Tom, and I, I really believe I have people that can help you. I earn your trust because I care about you. I care about you reaching your goals. I care about you pursuing your mission. And I'm going to honor your mission. I'm not going to recruit you to do something else that you're not equipped to do. And that is so essential. We go back to what are the three fundamentals of movements? Trust, empowerment, shared purpose. But it always begins with trust. Trust always begins by listening well. Upward communication. The, the, there's a science behind this. It's called humble inquiry. Humble inquiry is the science of listening well. It's called the gentle art of asking and not telling. And especially in a culture where we love to tell people. <laughs> we love to influence and we love to tell people what they, is best for them. What if you know what's best for you, Tom? And what if I help bring that out in you and I help you find others who will help you in that journey? Would, would people want to go on that journey? Yes. What's the first thing people should do in communities? Listen. Stop selling, stop imparting vision, stop selling your thing. Listen to people, celebrate people, elevate people, invite people to come together, invite people to help each other, and ultimately invite people to understand that ultimately everything that's happening in our community is what God is doing. Everything we do in San Antonio is based on this single phrase. I say this over and over again. We say, we believe God desires to redeem and restore marriages in San Antonio by his power and for his glory. This is what God is doing in our city. He's a good father. He invites us into this work. This might surprise you, but I don't thank people. I wouldn't thank you for being a part of the marriage initiative. I would thank you, Tom, for being a part of what God is doing in your city. I remind people, this is not our problem. These problems are massive and overwhelming. There's no way with human effort, human strategies that we can ever accomplish these things. But God can, and he invites us into this. And we have seen, I have so many stories where it is just so clear that God is moving so powerfully. Uh, and and that is an exciting journey. Can I, can I tell you one of those stories? Sure. <laughs> So uh, I had a, a donor that uh, was really, he's really into marriage and uh, he lives in a different city and he was coming to San Antonio. And the story I'm going to tell you, this stuff like this happens all the time. And um, so he calls me on a Sunday about lunch and he says, hey, Carl, he said, I'm coming to San Antonio and I was wanting to go to the rodeo. I hear you, you guys are having a rodeo and I'd like to come see that. And uh, he said, do you think you could get me some tickets? And I said, sure, you know. And I, I knew a lot of people in San Antonio. I thought, this is easy. So 
it was Sunday afternoon. I sent a couple of text messages and um, Sunday evening comes. I didn't get any positive responses. So I thought, okay, well, that's, that's all right. You know, Monday, Monday, uh, Monday morning, I'll send some emails and make a few phone calls. So I get up Monday morning, make a few phone calls and call some people, send out some emails. Monday afternoon, I got nothing. Monday evening, I got nothing. And at the end of Monday, I'm like, okay, God, you, uh, I'm really confused because you just seem to show up in everything. And I'm like, I'm really confused about this. I wake up Sunday. Uh, so Monday night, I send off a few more things. Okay. I'm, man, I'm calling people I know are going to have some radio tickets. And so uh, get up Tuesday morning, zero, got nothing. It's, it's dark outside. I'm sitting in the chair. I'm having coffee. I'm in my prayer time. And I'm like, I'm actually, Tom, I'm having a moment of repentance. I'm like, Lord, you show up so often. You show up in so many ways. I have come to expect you. And um, this is not about me. It's about you. Uh, and I, I literally, I had a moment of repentance, confession, repentance. God, forgive me for expecting you to jump through my hoops. You know, my expectations are unrealistic. And I remember getting ready for the day and thinking, you know, I need to get used to this. And I, I need to get used to like, I am so used to God just showing up in all these amazing ways. I'm so used to this that I think it's just caused my, my expectations to be off kilter. And I, I need to get used to the fact that God doesn't show up in everything. So that's how I start my day. And uh, I have a luncheon that day, and it's a big luncheon. Going to be about 200 people there. It's a mayor's luncheon. I got there early. Walked in, signed up. I was the second person there. Huge ballroom. There's an older gentleman at the other end of the ballroom. And nobody else is there. So I thought, well, I'll go introduce myself. I go down, introduce myself. And I say, hi, I'm Carl Caton. And tell me your name. And he tells me his name. And I said, well, that's great to meet you, Keith. And I said, tell me, what do you do? He said, well, I'm the CEO of the San Antonio Stock Show and Rodeo. And of all those banquet tables that had name tags at every table, of all those bank table, banquet tables, he was sitting two spaces away from me. His, his name tag was one space between mine. And, uh, and uh, you know, I love this work because I truly believe God desires to redeem and restore marriages. Uh, it's, it's not relying on me. My name's not in that. You don't hear anything about Carl or you don't hear anything about the San Antonio Marriage Initiative. All you hear in that statement is that God desires to do this, I believe, and he's going to do it for his power and through his power and for his glory. But the beautiful thing is he invites me into this exciting daily work of accomplishing the impossible uh, for his power and for his by his power and for his glory. A couple follow-up questions. Who, how do you decide who, who those people are you're going to meet with? And then after you've met with people, what's your next step in, this, in terms of a community marriage initiative? Yeah. So uh, one person leads me to another. So I finish every conversation by asking, who else should I talk to? And let me tell you something. If you're not selling people something, if you're not coercing them to do something, if you're not trying to use your influence, if you care deeply about people, they love for you to meet their friends because they had a great experience. And so I have never run out of people. So I always ask, I'd say, Tom, who else should I know? Who do you know that's working in the world of marriage at the highest level? Who should I talk to? 
And so that always leads to my next conversation. And usually it's two, usually it's two conversations. Um, and here's the thing is that ultimately you need people to meet together. You need to get people to get to know one another. So in every conversation, my prayer time during this conversation is, Lord, show me what is it that Tom is doing that could be helpful to others? What is it you've given him uniquely? And very often, I'll finish the conversation by just inviting and just saying, you know, Tom, uh, what you shared with me, your, your, your vision for like creating these opportunities for marriage champions. I said, that is so, un I would say that's so unique. Would you like to come and share that with other people? Because I know they'd like to, to meet you. And I think you'd like to meet them. And ultimately, almost everyone says yes to that question. When you get people in a room together and you start celebrating your common vision and mission, uh, and you develop that sense of shared identity, who we are as a people. Remember I said movements have three components, trust, empowerment, and shared purpose. When you have a sense of shared identity, that really attracts people together. We were, we convene, I told you, we convene our counseling community. And uh, during COVID or after COVID, our counseling community had been through such a hard season. They were so overwhelmed by all the need. And and I told our team, let's do a really nice white tablecloth luncheon for our counseling community. We had 30 counselors show up and they sat around this big table and we just loved on them for an hour. And when we were getting ready to finish, one of the counselors spoke up and he said this. He said, I want you all to know. He said, you know, when when I'm he said, most of the couples I meet with, I really enjoy meeting with. And he said, 90 percent of those couples, I really feel like. I can help them in their marriage. I can really make a difference. But he said about 10% of those couples, he said, I feel like I'm just hitting my head against the wall, not making any progress. But he said this, whenever I'm just about ready to give up on a couple, he said, I think of all of you. And he pointed around the table. He said, I think of all of you. And he said, thinking of you gives me the energy to give it one more try. That, is shared identity. It's who we are as a people on mission together. That is what helps teams score touchdowns. That's what brings 70,000 people together in a stadium to cheer them on. That's what motivates the coaching staff is that we have a central shared identity of who we are and where we're going, what we want to accomplish together. That is essential for movements. And that's the beautiful thing God does in communities when he brings his people together to advance his mission. So the vision is after you've met the people, you seek to bring them together. Mm -hmm. And then uh, with people with where they might have a shared interest with individuals mm -hmm. and, and then um, provide, make people aware of resources, other things. Yep. That yep. Follow with that? Yeah. When we, when we meet together in person, there's four things we always do. We encourage, we equip, we resource, and we connect. We encourage by elevating why is this important that we're doing this work together? What is it that we're accomplishing together? We encourage. Why is this important to God? Why is this important to our city? Why is this important to us individually? The second thing is we equip. We facilitate the process of people learning from one another. One of the things we say in San Antonio is we say, we don't teach people anything. 
we facilitate the process of people learning from one another. We help elevate the best practices in our community. The third thing is we resource. What are some of the best resources out there that we can tap into so that we can all be more and better resourced? And then we connect. What if you went away today and we, we challenge it. We call this just coffee. When we, when we send people away, we say, before you leave today, find one person you've never met and commit to have just coffee together. Not to advance your agenda, just to get to know one another and celebrate each other. What can we do to strategically create connections? We've, we've had events where we will put uh, $5 Starbucks cards in front of everybody that's at the tables. And we'll say, all right, take your Starbucks card and find somebody to use that with. And you create these powerful personal connections. So do you... Um bring them together in one group or multiple groups or depending on their interests or is it just one large group that you seek to network people? That's one of the biggest mistakes we made. <laughs> We've made a lot of mistakes, by the way. <laughs> one of the biggest mistakes we made is we just put everybody in one room together. And what we found was, is while a senior pastor cares about what a lay couple is dealing with and while a counselor is concerned about what a family law attorney is concerned is important to them. People really want to grow in their skill and ability. So what we typically we like to do is what we do. We call role focused meetings, role focused gatherings. So we gather our counseling community together as a group of people who share the same role together. They accomplish more things. We can more directly uh, address the unique challenges that they face. Um, we have this one, one super easy gathering trick is we call it opportunities and roadblocks. People love this. So we'll put, uh, like a, we'll get a small boardroom table in the city, we'll bring in sandwiches, we'll invite 12, 15, 18 people. We call this opportunities and roadblocks. So we'll, uh, we'll open the meeting, talk, you know, just briefly kind of do some introductions, get caught up on, and then we'll go around the table. And I'll say, okay, we're gonna start at my left here. And we want to go around the table and we want everybody to share what's one opportunity that you're really excited about. So we go all around on the table and, and people are like, whoa, this is amazing. Wow. They're really encouraged to hear. Wow. These are, you know, these are motivated people. One guy wants to start a podcast and this other guy wants to do uh, events at a retreat center. And, and this lady over here wants to learn uh, a new form of counseling therapy. So like, wow, everybody's like taken aback by how much energy there is. When it comes back to me, I say, okay, now second time around the table, this time talk about what's your roadblock, opportunities and roadblock. So what's the roadblock that you face? Just like in my listening sessions, we go all the way around the table, let everybody talk about, okay, what's, I wanna start a podcast, but my roadblock is, I'm not sure which equipment I should buy and how you edit and so I, I could get Tom Pritchard to help. Tom Pritchard does podcasts. Okay. So, uh, so we talk about the roadblock. And then the, the challenge is we say, before you leave the room, find one person you're going to help them with their roadblock. People love it. Super easy meeting format, real easy agenda. Uh, and people love that sort of thing. They help each other. They, they, they're excited by, uh, around each other. We, we had one guy come back. I keep talking about podcasts. You know, he had learned from another guy the right equipment to buy and the nuances of how you do it. And he was having 10,000 downloads, uh, I think a month on his new podcast. He was so excited because we created those connections. So 
here's the thing about getting people together, Tom, is you've got to create value because people are making an investment. And the reason why uh, meeting together, getting together typically fades is you're not creating value. We tell our team, like we, our, our team mantra is 10 to one. If, if we're gonna have one hour of conversation in our meeting, I want you to prepare for 10 hours for that conversation, 10 to one. If you do that, you create lots of value. You curate all the people that are speaking. We, we do content curation. You know, if, if I'm inviting you to come to a meeting to share your best practices, I'm gonna spend a couple of hours with you kind of curating what is it you have to share and, and if I'm going to call on you for about 20 minutes, tell me, wh what are you going to share with our group? And then, and I'm going to create some really good questions that draw that out of you. Uh, and so we work really hard to create valuable. Look, people get in their car, they drive in traffic, they come to a, a busy location, they're away from their office three hours. You know, it's a big investment. And when you have 100 people doing that, collectively, that's an enormous investment create value people will keep coming back when our participation declines our immediate go-to is saying okay we're not creating good enough value because people will come if you create value now they won't tell you that they'll say something like well i was busy or i had a conflict or something like that yeah they had a conflict they they went to jason's deli for lunch <laughs> instead you know so um if you keep creating lots of value People will continue to come. As they continue to come, they'll get to know each other. As they get to know each other, they'll figure out how to serve one another. And then, then you're really creating value. It sounds like that's the key element of creating a movement is building those relationships. Mm -hmm. If you if one had to really zero in on one thing at almost mm -hmm. developing, networking, facilitating that, would you agree with that or would you have some... Absolutely. Yeah, I was talking about uh, uh, talking to a guy who he, he described himself as a movement leader. I said, well, tell me about your movement. And it was more of a technology. He was developing an app. And I said, well, I'm a movement leader, but my specialty is sociology. I study the sociology of how human beings come together. And they do. You're exactly right, Tom. People come together around relationship. And uh, so that's you got it. Got it right. Well, uh, concluding our time, uh, if somebody wanted more information on your work, uh, San Antonio Marriage Initiative, the broader community marriage initiative, uh, where should they go? Yeah, so our, our, uh, our site for our city is samarriage.org, samarriage.org. Uh, but if you're a city leader, we have a different website, and it's called marriageinitiative.org. That's singular, marriageinitiative.org. And uh, marriageinitiative.org is where we unite visionary marriage leaders in cities. Okay. Uh, and finally, any closing remarks or comments, thoughts that come to mind that you'd like to leave our listeners with? <laughs> well, I, I would say that if somebody made it through this much content, uh, they are a phenomenal listener. So I would just say thank you for listening. What a, what a great thing. So, Tom, thank you for having me. Really appreciate you having me on your podcast today. I've, I've followed you for years. I heard about you many years ago and the work that you were doing in Minnesota, the Family Council, and it's been so great to continue to develop our relationship. Thanks for having me today. Well, thanks for being with me, Carl.